Everybody gets hurt. Hit the floor. <laughs> Not you. Sorry, I'm a little nervous. I've never been involved in a robbery before. Well, except for the time my dad got our water bill, he said this is highway robbery, but that part. Shut up! I just wanted to let you know about my study group. Oh, don't be a fuddy-duddy. I'll be your study buddy. I'm about to embark on one of the great challenges of my scientific career. This work right here is going to change history. I think this is going to be our greatest mission. I don't have time to study. I'm never getting to Stanford. I got big plans for you tonight. I got maps. I got charts. I'm going to see you through this because my credibility is on the line. It's at this point that you'll want to start taking notes. Welcome to The Sitcom Study, the podcast where we contemplate the TV shows we grew up with and search for the truth and wisdom within the tropes and cliches. Amy, what is the trope we're talking about today? It's a hostage situation, Jay. It is indeed a tense, thrilling, dangerous hostage situation. That's right. And all of these hostage situations take place at a bank yeah, so we're talking specifically bank robberies. The desire to cover this trope, in my mind, began with the Doogie Hauser episode where he and Vinny are held up by gunpoint in a 7-Eleven. And when we started doing the deep dive, we found that there's lots of hostage situations all over the TV sitcom landscape, and a bunch of them are bank robberies. And so we decided to do that first. Yeah. So most of these, half of these are um, Dog Day Afternoon send-ups, and you're quite familiar with that movie and that plot. So tell us a little bit about the send-up. Sure. Well, I would say, first of all, all of these are Dog Day Afternoon send-ups, but two of them call it out specifically in the title. So Dog Day Afternoon's a movie from the 70s with Al Pacino that was really popular, prestigious, it just really set the tone for the modern bank robbery in movies. You know, we've the had modern heist. Yeah, we've had these forever in the old westerns and Bonnie and Clyde and so on and so forth. You know, as long as there have been death defying tales and adventures and cops and robbers, we've had bank robberies. But Dog Day Afternoon in the 70s created this whole new vibe of what if the bank robbers aren't necessarily menacing and sinister? What if they're sweaty and nervous and a little dumb? And there's still a lot of tension and suspense in this situation, but it's not because the bank robbers are scary. It's because the whole situation is spiraling out of control. And so this movie tapped into all of this anxiety that was happening in a broad sense of this post-Vietnam, post-Watergate ennui and this sense of nobody knows what to do anymore and everyone's just feeling disillusioned and jaded about everything. There's lots of references to the Attica prison riots that had happened a few years earlier where a bunch of prisoners and prison employees had been killed by police officers. So there's all of this this sense of unrest and anxiety that comes out in this movie and it establishes all these new tropes of what a bank robbery might look like in the 70s from the sort of technological aspects of it of oh you need to know about the all the alarms that are hidden in the cash registers and stuff like that to like i said on a character level the idea of let's not even past judgment, let's not have a hero and a villain. Let's just watch the craziness 
simmer as this situation gets more and more out of control. And you definitely have tropes like sooner or later, we're going to need to get food for everybody. And that's going to play into it. So yeah, I think the the specter of Dog Day Afternoon hangs over all of these. Right. And what I noticed about these four shows in opposition to the, the movie, right? The movie is trying to be suspenseful. It's trying, I mean, the movie is, is a movie, right? It's not a family sitcom that you're watching in a half hour on, you know, a random Thursday night. The movie has all of that, you know, it can have the violence, it can have all of that fear and suspense built in. These are half hour TV shows other than the the one, the Different Strokes episode is a double episode. It was a season premiere. Even so, there there wasn't the fear in all of these that you felt or the suspense that you felt from watching the movie. This is definitely a a watered down sort of pales in comparison in terms of the emotional expense that it's costing you to watch it. That's true. But what they do take from the movie is that idea of as the day unfolds and that initial shock and terror dies down, the hostages do become more comfortable and that dynamic starts to change. And in some cases, the hostages are more sympathetic to the robbers than they are to the police. And that dynamic that you see play out in these various episodes you know that it that it isn't so black and white and that the robbers aren't so menacing i do think that comes from the dog day afternoon movie yeah and you see that so let's get into what we're talking about today so we are talking about different strokes season 3 episode 1 and 2 it was a double episode called the bank job then we moved on to family matters season 2 episode 7 dog day halloween Next was The Nanny, Season 4, Episode 16, The Bank Robbery, and rounding it out with Bob's Burgers, Season 2, Episode 2, Bob Day Afternoon. Yeah, so beginning with different strokes, before we get to the bank robbery aspect, oh boy, so this is another huge presence in the retro sitcom landscape. I was thinking that, you know, if you talk about the moments where an individual sitcom jumps the shark, is Different Strokes a moment where sitcoms in general jump the shark? Like this show seems so problematic to me for reasons that I don't know if I can entirely put my finger on. I have so many questions. What's the deal with Gary Coleman? Is he an adult? Is he a child? How does Webster fit into all of this? That's a different show. (laughs) What is the story with Different Strokes? So different strokes, the story is, um, and I think part of the reason you're kind of bumping up against it is it's white savior, right? You have this president, white guy, president of a company, um, very well off, and he has a daughter and they live in this palatial apartment on Park Avenue. And the original open, the first two seasons you see in the credits at the beginning, because this is when uh, back in the days when credits played at the beginning of shows. You see Mr. Drummond driving to Harlem in his fancy limousine and picking up the two boys from their, you know, I guess, old home in Harlem and moving them to his palatial apartment on Park Avenue. And so that is the premise of the show, that this man has adopted these two um, youngsters from Harlem and has, you know, rescued them from generational poverty. Right. So... 
you have that aspect to it that this is before the Cosby show. This is after the Jeffersons. And it's, yeah, troubling that when you see black kids in prosperity on TV, it's because they've been adopted by a rich white guy. And Webster has the same thing, basically. It's a couple of rich white people that adopted this little black kid. So that brings me to the second part of my question. I know that both Gary Coleman and Emmanuel Lewis had issues to do with their growth, yes, Mm -hmm. how they grew and it made them look younger than they were or something. So that's what I want to know because I I have a very cursory understanding of this. Is this a case where we're looking at a 47-year-old guy pretending to be a baby or is it just that he's really short? No. So um, he is 12 pretending to be nine in this episode. He's just a few months away from his 13th birthday. He had a kidney disease that he was born with, and the medicine that they gave him, it had like steroids in it. The medicine that they gave him to help him, you know, be okay and get through and, you know, be more healthy and be able to live a life uh, also stunted his growth. So both the kidney disease and the medicine they gave him contributed to him never growing taller than I was like four nine or something and the fact that he had childlike features like he, he retained a you know childlike features in his face all the way up until his death and I think he was in his 40s or something when he died so yeah so yes he had a medical issue and that contributed to all of this and so what you're seeing here in this episode is a little you know it's a little odd when we look at it from now where we're saying oh Oh, this kid, he he's this is an episode where Tootie from Facts of Life is guest starring. So she's gonna go to the amusement park with them. And the first half of this episode is the family at the house getting ready to go to the amusement park, and Tootie is coming over because she's gonna come along and Arnold has a has a crush on her. So they say over and over again that she's an older woman because she's 12 and he's nine. And so there's all these gags about him being so short and her being taller and him being so young and her being an older woman. And he puts stacks of cards in cowboy boots um, to make himself taller. And then he comes down the stairs, but he can't walk because the cowboy boots come up to his knees and he's trying to stand on stacks of decks of cards inside them. And so, yeah, you just got to think as maybe you know like as a 12 year old right think about life as a middle school aged boy and what it is like to be the shorter kid and now put yourself on tv and have entire episodes built around this fact yeah exactly so you've already got the queasiness of this white savior bullshit and then you've got this kids you know abnormality or condition or whatever you call it being sort of turned into this spectacle or whatever. Now, on the other hand, before I start taking it too seriously, there is a point where I kind of stop myself and go like, well, but he's funny and the show is funny. And even on the racial stuff, like, look, they're trying in broad strokes to paint a picture of a multi-ethnic family and everyone's getting along. And And there is a connection, right? So he just didn't randomly go to Harlem and be like, looking for two brothers, you know, here's some money. I need to adopt some kids. Their mother passed away and she used to work for him. 
And so it was more along the lines of like his wife, he was a widower, his wife had died, their mother died. He knows what that's like, had already is already raising a daughter whose mother has also died and was, you know, was like, these kids are part of my family now. I owe that to these kids because I, you know, I know their mother and she used to work for me. Right. So I feel like what we're saying is that I think more or less their hearts were in the right place with the premise of this show, but there's a lot about it that seems vaguely uncomfortable now. And like you said, this is a two-part season premiere. So we get a quick scene of dialogue between Mr. Drummond and Willis, because of course, already at this point, Arnold's entrance is an event that doesn't disappoint because he comes out in full samurai outfit and says, Arnold is ready, Papa-san. Yes. It's just so clear that he is, you know- He's the comedy. Yeah. And it's the same with Urkel in Family Matters. Like they figured out really early on that this kid, this one kid had the comic chops. And so let's lean into that and give him all these funny bits. And he's got this whole bit with the samurai thing. And and he's like, oh, I will now commit seppuku Mm -hmm. and waves around a rubber knife and then has this whole, you know, chaotic- death scene and he just he's just having a good time he's just being silly and the camera loved it right the audiences loved it and so the whole beginning half of this episode which would be an entire episode of different strokes normally is gary coleman yucking it up yeah he's funny i like when he does his little scrunched up face thing when he's feeling sheepish when he goes like there's too much wax on the stairs. And he gives that little smile. It reminds me a lot of Whoopi Goldberg in Ghost when she's trying to sort of con her way through the bank. And she has a lot of these little sheepish looks when she says the wrong thing or whatever. Yeah, he's very good. Uh, We don't want to imply that they just found some kid that was too small for his age and threw him in front of the camera. He's very funny. And yeah, Tootie shows up, like you said, dressed in a bow tie and suspenders no, dressed in a bow tie and Oshkosh Bagash overalls Overalls. that are purple and corduroy. Yeah, sorry, not suspended. She was also, she's also one of these kids that, I mean, at this time she was like 11 or 12. She and Gary Coleman are the same age, but they had her dressed in little kids' clothing. Yeah, and the way she acts is odd to me. Like she, I know she's a beloved character and 80s, you know, fixture, but- I don't know. She seemed, she was delivering lines the way like a five or six year old kid does, where it's just cute that they're saying anything at all. Right. And she looks older than that. Like it, it seems odd. She has that actor thing, that kid actor thing of like, this is how they train you to be funny. You say it just like this, right, daddy? Yeah. Or something like that. And so that's like, she has that very, it's very like Nickelodeon Disney kid training, um, but before yeah. Nickelodeon. Or just and, 80s network yeah, sitcom just, it's just, you know, it's kid actor training and she, she has it to a T. It's so stark in this episode because you have Gary Coleman, who's her same age, not doing any of that. He's being hilarious because he's funny and he has good comedic timing. Whereas she is given comic jokes and she's just like, nah, 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 nah. Yeah. She's, she's cute basically, you know, and she's, she's photogenic, but yeah, the the delivery is not there yet. I do also want to track because this is becoming more and more of an obsession of mine as we watch these shows over the decades 
the live audience in this one is back in action where we don't have a monster situation where we're hearing the canned laughter. And you could tell not just by what they laugh at, but what they don't. You know, there's a point where Tootie says that aftershave makes you smell tall because they've told her that he wants to be taller. Now, as far as I'm concerned, that's as much of a joke as anything you're going to hear in this episode. And the audience doesn't react to it for whatever reason that just didn't land with them. And it's so much more interesting to me to watch these shows where you hear that human response and you always have that feeling of, yeah, this is a stage and they're putting on a little play, not just that generic canned laughter that makes you feel like you're watching the Flintstones. Yeah. And so, and I had forgotten when 2D came on, I had forgotten that in the first season of Different Strokes, the housekeeper is Mrs. Garrett who leaves and spins off into the the facts of life. She leaves the their job as a housekeeper for um, Mr. Drummond and goes and becomes the house mother at this private boarding school. And that's how facts of life came to be. So it's a different strokes spinoff. Yeah. So Tootie coming back around, this is, a, they know her. This is a normal thing because they know Mrs. Garrett. Yeah. And I would say that probably despite our criticisms, Tootie's popularity was probably a part of why Facts of Life came to be. Right. Absolutely. I remember when I was a kid, I loved watching Facts of Life for Tootie. She was my favorite. She was the one that was closest in age to me, even though I was very young when that, you know, when I was watching that show. And yeah, I she was always my favorite. And and I've loved kind of watching Kim Fields as she's gone on to do things that are more grown-up roles because I remember her when she was little. And I have sort of the same feeling about uh, Rudy from The Cosby Show sure. and all the like all the little kids that were like my age-ish, at, you know, when they were on TV. So to get into the story, really simply, they're all going to the amusement park. Arnold wants Tootie to be his date, but it's sort of a moot point. Mr. Drummond, the sister, Willis, Arnold, everyone is going on a trip to the amusement park. They have to stop off at the bank. They have to stop off at the bank because Arnold wants to pay for everything for Tootie and he has $12 in his bank account, so he's going to go take some money out. Now, stop right there. I don't want to get bogged down on this, but there is a weird numerology thing going on in this episode. They're obsessed with the fact that she's 12. In that first episode, they keep saying, Tootie's 12 and I'm only nine. She's 12, 12, 12. And of course I notice, because how can you not, that he's wearing a t-shirt, like a sports jersey that has the number 12 on it. And then they go to the bank and the bank teller says, this account only has $12. So it's his net worth, his girlfriend's age, his shirt number. And his actual age. Yeah, it's so strange. (laughs) But anyway, in pretty short order, they discover that this bank is being robbed. Right. So Willis and um, Arnold go into the bank you know, Mr. Drummond's going to go in and, and Arnold's like, no, no, you, you know, I'm, I'm the man I'm taking around the state. I I'm going to go in, you know, I'm going to do it. And so he goes and Willis is like, I'll go with him, you know, whatever. And so he goes in with him and yeah, somebody comes in and holds up the bank. And then a short while later, they, you know, they close the shades and they lock the door. They're they're acting like just like in Dog Day Afternoon that this is the time that the bank is closing. Like they're they're closing up shop and they got in right away. Yeah, and that's not the only similarity to Dog Day Afternoon. This is where I wrote, you know, just because it's not in the title, this is still very much taken from that. That these two bank robbers who are both wearing khaki pants 
they have pantyhose on their faces, but they take them off immediately. They call each other by their names as often as humanly possible. Okay. This guy starts every sentence with the word Tom. Is that the the Tommy the, or Tom? Yeah, yeah something like the that. The other guy's name is Woody, but you get the sense right off the bat these guys are nervous. They're bumbling. They're not fully in charge. And yeah, I was just like, oh, Dog Day Afternoon written all over it. This is totally in that vein. Yeah. So, I mean, you get all the shenanigans that you get from a normal little bank heist scene, like, uh, you know, get the tellers out from around the counter. Don't touch any of the alarms. Go find the manager. Get the keys. We got to go in the vault. There's no money in the vault because it had been picked up earlier, which is also a plot point from um, Dog Day Afternoon. And so then they start going to try to find more money in the teller registers. And then, you know, there's the main guy whose his name is like Woody or Willie or something, and then his accomplice, Tom or Tommy or something, who is really, really nervous. Like, this is like his first bank robbery. You and can tell. just a total sort of beta cuck of a guy. <laughs> like, he's just like a super nice he's guy. Like, hey, like, hey, Woody, should we do it like this? Or, or hey, what are you? He oh, believes these kids everything. Over here. Every time one of the hostages tells him something, like, oh, the back door is locked or there's no money there he always takes it at face value right. and woody the mastermind has to be like hey schmuck don't believe them check for check yourself for, yeah go check again go lock it again go make sure so yeah so they they go through all of the you know kind of like i said normal bank heisty types of things they've got as much money as they're gonna get they fill up their they've got three briefcases they go to head out and at this point, Mr. Drummond has come over and knocked on the door because he's like, what's going on? My kids are in there. Why is it taking so long? And the and they're like, oh, no, it's fine. you know. And then he's like, no, my kids are in there. Let me in. So he gets let in at some point during all of these like bank heist shenanigans. And he's in there so long that the two girls come over and knock on the knock on the window. And they're like, what's going on? And the security guard is speaking through the glass at them and saying, everything's fine, everything's fine, and then does like a face that the robber who's behind him can't see. And that makes the girls get nervous and they go next door across the street, whatever, and call the cops. So now we're in full hostage situation. Yeah, the police cars show up. All of these episodes have these exterior shots of the banks where there's a dozen police cars around them. And yeah, we get, again, inspired by Dog Day Afternoon, one of these hostage situations that's just sort of unfolding over the course of time. And it ends on the cliffhanger. I put it has the vibe of Avengers Infinity War, where it just ends with this quiet, somber note, no music playing over the credits. And it's just like... We're screwed, everybody. Tune in next week to see how the hell they get out of this. Well, and it's tune in in five minutes because they it was aired as a double. Um, and so, yeah, so then it comes back, you know, we we start we start again and they are we're we're fully in the hostage situation. And now it's time for the food. Right. Everybody's getting hungry. Everybody's getting antsy. The you know, they don't they can't figure their way out. The back door has been barricaded. They don't have an idea. They're just sort of floundering, not knowing how to get out of this situation without the cops killing them. And so you've got Willis and Arthur kind of like offering them suggestions over and over again, just like, what about that? Or what about this? Or, oh, hey. And then he, like, at one point, they're talking about how they grew up in Harlem. 
And one of the robbers is like, where'd you live? And they were like, oh, we lived on 124th Street. And he's like, oh, no way. Do you know so-and-so? And so, and then like the Woody guy or Willie guy, whatever, the, the mastermind guy is like, will you stop? They're hostages. So then they're like, okay, well, we need food. People are getting hungry. So they negotiate for, I guess, hamburgers. And then the hamburgers are going to come in through the night drop, the drop box, because they bring them up to the door, but nobody wants, they, none of the robbers want to open the door and they don't want the hostages to open the door. So they're like, put them in the night drop, put them in the night drop. And this is where things start to happen because Willis and Arnold go over to the night drop to take the hamburgers out. And as everybody's eating, Arnold stays over by the night drop and the two robbers are standing at a desk talking and the less experienced robber leaves the keys on the desk behind his back so he's not seeing it. And Arnold makes eye contact with Willis, who is going to distract them to keep them looking the other direction. Arnold grabs the keys, sticks his hand out of the night drop box and starts waving the keys around and tosses them out so the cops can get in the back door. Yeah. So Arnold has snuck the keys to the cops. This is where the whole thing starts to break from reality for me. The overarching strategy is just Mr. Drummond is telling them, oh, I've got a limo. I've got a private jet. I'm going to help you. I can facilitate all this ways that you can get out. You can take me with you, blah, blah, blah. But meanwhile, yeah, Arnold is helping the police in these little ways, sneaking them the keys and whatnot. And Willis and Mr. Drummond are like encouraging this. Like Willis sees him and he's like, oh yeah, good idea. As opposed to what should be happening, which is, no, do absolutely nothing. Just stay still and don't bother anybody until this is over. Well, they saw their opportunity, right? And Mr. Drummond didn't see it. And in fact, when he heard about it, he was like, that was really dangerous. You shouldn't have done that. And Willis was like, no, it's okay. I saw him. I was, you know, purposefully trying to keep their attention over here. And they did notice him kind of hanging out. They did notice Arnold hanging out by the night drop box. And he was like, what, what? And he did Willis, another one of his cutesy little sheepish shuffles. Yeah. Right? And Willis was like, he was looking for more hamburgers. And he was like, yeah, I was looking for more hamburgers. And then the limo arrives. It's time for Mr. Drummond to go with the bad guys as their lone hostage. And they say, no, we've changed our mind. We want the kids. The kids have to come. And so at this point, Willis and Arnold and Mr. Drummond know that the cops have the keys and are about to bust in the back door. So they milk this goodbye for all they can. And as they're milking the goodbye, the cops are, are now sneaking into the hallway and getting ready to just take the guys down. And all of this depends on the two robbers not looking at any of the hubbub that's happening with the goodbye, only looking out the front door. Yeah. Again, completely irresponsible and idiotic. If you were Mr. Drummond and these guys are making their way out of the bank and you're trying to deal with them. Are they going to take me? Are they going to take the kids? All right, take the kids, but don't hurt them. 
The last thing you want to see is cops starting to sneak into the room. All that's going to do is create chaos. A firefight and you're caught in the middle. Yeah. If I'm Mr. Drummond, I'm going, oh, we're dead now. Yeah. We're we're goodbye, Hit cool the world. Deck. <laughs> yeah. But instead, he's like, oh, good. The cops are sneaking up. So all I need to do is go up and he does something like, hey, hey, Woody, uh, what do you think of that limo over there? Well, he does something to get him to look out the window. Yeah. And has the kids is that run enough back. Or whatever. Yeah. And yeah. then the kids run away and then he and then and he's like, Yeah, it looks good. And then he goes down and they shoot the guy or they punch the guy or something, and the cops sure. take him. So to me, what that says is that the function of this bank robbery trope, in this case, there's not any sort of lesson learning or personal arc i think this is all about let's have an exciting season premiere right yes. let's have something where we can air the commercials that say this week on different strokes they're in a bank robbery and show some clips from this and get everyone to know this is going to be a you know everything's going to be stepped up for this episode we're going to be out of the living room set there's going to be cops and robbers and gunplay and all that stuff and yeah, there's no larger point to it, I think, except to just have an exciting episode. Yeah, I think you're right. This was 1980. This episode aired in 1980. So it would have been, you know, five years after Dog Day Afternoon. I think when you think about the earlier sitcoms that we've watched, all of, you know, the 60s and 70s stuff and into the 80s, Unless it's a very special episode that's dealing with something like that the kids have gotten into, you don't get to have real drama, right? You get to have manufactured family drama that's lighthearted and fun. This was adult drama that these – that an adult sort of dram dramatic situation that the kids are thrust into. And uh, and yeah, and, they, and they'll take that thread. Different strokes will pick up that thread multiple times throughout their – the lifetime of their series like they did an episode or i think maybe it was like a two another special like two episode where the kids are being groomed by a pedophile yeah they definitely had their share of issue episodes but yeah in this case arnold's takeaway is that he's not gonna like women anymore because this never would have happened if he didn't have a crush on tootie in the first place and then we're we're kind of off to the next episode and you know all's well that ends well yeah so moving on to Family Matters. Season two, episode seven, Dog Day Halloween. Yes. So this is our second time covering Family Matters. I think the first time we were talking about season one, but since then, Urkel's power has only grown, right? We could see him getting older and his dominance of the show just increasing. But we don't start with Urkel. We start with this one with the family decorating the house for Halloween. And the joke about the daughter's messy room is the most family circus type, like wholesome tripe. The mom goes, oh, uh, I don't know if they're talking about Laura or the other daughter. They, they say she wants something to really scare the kids in the neighborhood. And the dad goes, well, if she really wants to scare them, she should show them her messy room or something like that. Just... 
screams that ABC family TGIF type mentality. We're we're back home and family matters. So the premise for this episode is it's Halloween. This is their very first Halloween episode. This would become something in the series that was uh, beloved episodes, kind of not on the not on the scale of The Simpsons, but every Halloween they they did something crazy and kooky. So this was kind of their first go, and um, we. Have have everybody is getting a costume but they were wait they waited till the last minute so the mom ended up getting the hunchback of notre dame costume so the quasimodo costume so that was a, another kind of silly laugh at the beginning and um but they realized that they didn't buy enough candy so they send laura out and steve goes along with her to get candy and she stops at the bank and steve does as well to deposit their checks right now we should say uh like you mentioned it's halloween so Laura is dressed as Tina Turner, pretty good Tina Turner outfit. Steve Urkel is Superman, which is, you know, pretty down the middle, but we we get it. You know, he's a little shrimpy guy, so wouldn't it be funny if he's Superman? Eddie, he doesn't come with them. He's back home, but he has a pretty great Frankenstein Yeah, costume. His he, Frankenstein outfit looks really good. It does. And his friend, who we saw in the season one episode, um, his friend goes as like the Bride of Frankenstein. No. No, he looks, goes as Don King. He looks like the Bride of Frankenstein, though, because it's the same kind of hair, and he's yes. standing next to Eddie, who's got this great Frankenstein costume. So I was like, I'm confused why the Bride of Frankenstein is wearing a suit, and then he says he's done. Yes, he is a non-blackface Don King. Yes. And so, yeah, everyone's got their outfits. So Urkel and Laura are going to the bank, like you said. Steve Urkel has his own check-cashing song and dance that he does, and the tellers all hate him. Yes. But this is the first time we get Steve Urkel singing a little ditty to the tune of Camp Town Races, where he's made up his own lyrics. And that also is an ongoing joke. He will do that over and over and over again to the same tune. Yeah. They're at the bank and it gets robbed. Right. right? The guy shows up and says, you know. Give me all your money, etc. This one's just one guy, so this isn't the like the dual robber thing. And he seems from the start like this was sort of a last minute idea. Like yeah, he was just he's like bungling. Oh, go he's in. dressed as Abe Lincoln. It was driving me crazy that the sides of his beard, like by his sideburns, were sort of peeling off and not attached. And then, yeah, eventually he does away with the whole costume. But yeah, it escalates into the same situation. We get establishing shots of the bank with the police cars swarming it. Now, of course, Carl Winslow is a police officer because any character played by Reginald Vell Johnson is a police officer. He's on the scene with his comically inept police captain starting to talk to the robber and negotiate and stuff, but not knowing that his daughter, Laura, is among the hostages. Right. And so they're having these conversations, like they're, you know, he's starting to talk. The police captain's like, oh, should I do this? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'll do what you said. And so he's the one, Reginald Val Johnson's having that, you know, he's the one telling him what to do all the time. Um, and I had a moment when I was watching this where I was like, why is this so familiar? Oh, right. This is Die Hard, but Halloween. Yeah, and much sillier. Yeah, and way sillier. We then get, we come back from commercial and we get a scene where Steve and 
all the hostages, but Steve and Laura are sitting there next to one another. They're just waiting because a robber has made some demands and they're all just kind of waiting around. All of these bank heists have this sort of waiting. There's just all this waiting around for the cops to meet the demands of whatever the robber has asked for. And and that's that's true in Dog Day Afternoon. Yeah, it's very like much the taken whole from that. episode is just waiting or the whole movie is just this waiting. And but without the suspense in these episodes, it's they have to like find some funny things to happen in the bank. And so what we get is Urkel standing up and going over to the guy and tapping him on the shoulder and going into full like karate kid mode and you know beating him up and then doing the swan thing and kicking him yeah, he kicks the gun right out of his hand and subdues him with karate now amy i'm pretty ashamed to say this but family matters fooled me I was writing in my notebook, we're seeing this series jump the shark right before our eyes. This is ludicrous. How dare they expect us to believe that Steve Urkel is going to disarm a gunman who is robbing the bank at 12 years old with his karate while dressed in his Superman pajama outfit. But of course, it turns out to be a fantasy and Steve is just sitting there thinking about disarming the guy with his karate. That's right. And then he says the same thing to Laura that he says in his fantasy. He stands up, he goes over, he taps the guy on the shoulder. And before he can even get his finger on the guy's shoulder to tap, the guy turns around and is like, what do you want? And waves the gun in his face. And he completely just melts as a normal human would when a gun is pointed at their head. He's like, oh, nothing. I just know. And freaks out and then goes back and he's like, well, go sit down. And then he goes back and sits down and he feels horrible about himself. He he feels like yes. completely dejected. And this is where we start to differ a little bit from different strokes, because even though I'm not going to say there's a hugely impactful or complex theme or moral to this, we're laying the seeds of the idea that Steve feels impotent. <laughs> Steve feels helpless that he can't do anything about this. Right. He wants to, he loves Laura and he wants to protect her. And what we get in this episode is him realizing that he that he can't. Yeah. And it leads to, at the end of the episode, a really heartfelt scene between the dad right. and between Carl Winslow and Urkel about bravery yeah. and what bravery really looks like. Right. But before we get there, I just want to say really quickly, we do check in with the family and get some of their Halloween costumes because Harriet now has her Hunchback of Notre Dame outfit. She looks terrifying. She looks like the Skeksis from the Dark Crystal. Oh, she does. Good call. It is quite a sight. Meanwhile, I noticed the younger daughter is dressed as Janet Jackson from Rhythm Nation 14, which dates this episode pretty much to the month, I would say, from when this came out in like hip hop culture. And keep in mind, this is the same show that last time we saw it, one of the characters said, I came over with the newest Janet Jackson video on video cassette. So there was some sort of backdoor payola going on here yeah, that Janet they Jackson. would not let a single they also, episode Well, they, on the last episode we watched, they also started it with a Bobby Brown video. Um, but yeah, so she's dressed as, as Janet Jackson. What about little Richie? Who was he dressed as? He was a Ninja Turtle. Yes, 
He's a Ninja Turtle. Which totally tracks. My brother was obsessed with Ninja Turtles and was also around four at the time. This is another example because this is season two. We're only like episode seven in season two. The last season when we watched the the other episode that we watched, Richie was a baby. Richie is now four, maybe five. They've done that thing. That's a whole other trope. But yeah, they've aged him up, swapped out the kids. But yeah, I got to imagine... This episode is like an intellectual property nightmare now. I'm just thinking about the Ninja Turtles sharing screen time with the Universal Monsters. And I don't know. But yeah, everyone's got (laughs) fun costumes. Back to the bank. They've asked. we're We're at the time where they ask for food. Yeah. So this is where we get something that was not inspired by Dog Day Afternoon or any bank robbery or police action of any kind. But it is a throwback. It is a callback to something that happened at the beginning of the episode. It's a question I have for you. Have you ever owned a can of snakes? Um. Yeah, I had that. We're talking about the toy that the little can of peanuts that you open and five or six snakes pop out in your friend's face. Yeah, I had that. Or just good one. Gag. Yeah, good gag. I think my grandparents had one at their house in their toy chest. And when we would all come over on holidays and stuff, there was this toy chest and one of our favorite toys to, you know, and we all knew what it was. Like, we all knew. But it was like, what were you going to wrap around it to fool? Like, hey, you want some peanuts? Oh, hey, do you want some of this? Like, what were you going to do? Oh, yeah, here, here you go. It's Kool-Aid or something. Like, and toss it to somebody, how are you going to fool your cousins this time? Yeah. Or in this case, your bank robber. Because the plan is the delivery man is none other than Carl Winslow in disguise as a Rastafarian pizza delivery man. So he's got dreadlocks and a goofy accent, which it goes without saying is completely superfluous and only serves to make him more suspicious and conspicuous to this bank robber. Because it's not like he's going to go, wait a minute, you sound a lot like the police officer that I was negotiating with on the phone. Good thing you have a Jamaican accent, so you can't possibly be him. But anyway, yeah, he opens up, he has two pizzas. He has two pizzas. And do you see the like shenanigans well, he does? I was just going to say, he's pulling the thing like Wallace Shawn in The Prince's Bride of like one of these cups is poison and one isn't. He's got to get just right that this guy- I built up a tolerance to Iocane powder. This robber is going to ask him to show him the pizzas so he knows there's no funny business. That's so right. He, so he has to take the pizza, not the one that's on top, because that's the one that has the gag in it. He has to, he takes the pizza that's on the bottom and opens it and hands the other guy the pizza from the top and says, see, look, no shenanigans, rather than just opening the pizza that's on the top. And then the guy's like, okay, great. Let's dig in. Opens the pizza box. Boing, snakes. Yeah, the snakes pop out in his face. I don't know how that even works with the shape, a container shaped like a pizza box versus a can. But that's their plan. Like, is that's their, that's their procedure. Get the pizza box with the snakes in it. We've got a bank robbery situation. Well, and we, it, as it turns out in that little conversation that we get at the very end, it was Carl's idea. 
because he's the one that's been having all of the ideas in this hostage situation because his boss is a nincompoop. But he got it from Steve. And so when Steve is saying how he feels really horrible that he couldn't save Laura and that he wasn't able to protect her and how could he ever think of himself as good enough to be her boyfriend if he wasn't brave enough in that situation, Carl's like, whoa you were very brave. Like you did exactly what you needed to do. You sat still. This is like what you were talking about in the first episode. Like you sat still, you stayed, like you sat next to her, you stayed calm. You didn't try to mess with the guy with the gun because you haven't been trained for that. And I have, but I did use your, your gag from earlier when you scared me with the snakes. That was a really good gag. And, and so see, you do have some good ideas. And I was like, oh boy. <laughs> it is so funny that, like you said, the, the bank robbery is over. Everybody's safe. We end with this heart to heart talk back at the house. And just like you said, Carl tells Steve, you did the right thing. You shouldn't feel bad. I only know what to do because I've been trained for this situation, which is exactly the right response. But it's just so absurd that in this world, what trained means is I know how to put on a crazy wig and do a Rastafarian accent and fill a pizza box with fake snakes. But there you have it. That is Family Matters. (laughs) Moving on to the nanny. All right, so now we're up to The Nanny, Season 4, Episode 16, yet another holiday episode, this time Valentine's Day. Yeah, so what's your relationship with The Nanny? Because this is one, I didn't watch this when it came out. My mom kind of liked it. My dad hated it with a passion. To this day, he remarks upon it randomly now and then as the most annoying you know, TV character to ever exist. Uh, So were you in on this? Are you familiar with it? Yeah. So, well, The Nanny is one of these ones that came out when we were in high school. And so that, you know, my social life was different in the evenings. It was no longer, you know, around the time, this is 1997, February 97. So that I was like a junior and I was busy. So I wasn't home on a lot of nights. I was doing rehearsals and I was doing, you know, we've talked about before I was in a lot of community theater and school theater and stuff. And so I just, I had a life and I wasn't watching as much TV. However, I watched a lot of this in reruns. And when I was home, I did watch it. It wasn't a favorite, but I liked it. And I thought, Brent Drescher and the annoying laugh and the voice and everything was hilarious. So this is basically the premise of this show is like the sound of music. If Julie Andrews was an insane Jewish caricature, right? Right. And that's, how the idea came about. So Fran Drescher and her husband, who is also the executive producer, they're like co-executive producers. Fran had this idea when she went to see A Sound of Music with a friend of hers. And she was like, oh, we should do it like a fish out of water story. So we talk sometimes about dropping into the middle of these series, not totally being up to speed on where we are in the story and stuff. This one, I really felt like, what the hell am I doing? This is like you said, season four in this very first scene, they're talking, you know, Fran Drescher's character, the nanny and Mr. So-and-so, the guy she works for. Shaft down. 
They're obviously in the midst of this overarching story where they've already slept together and their the nature of their relationship is uncertain. And you just immediately get the sense of like, oh, this thankfully, it's not even going to play into the story that much. But we are in the middle of this relationship drama unfolding and I don't know what their deal is. Well, and and. I was really confused, right? Because they were kind of a will they won't they thing and then they weren't. They they were a will they. It was it was it was happening. And so when this episode started and Mr. Sheffield is talking about how he got her, he's telling Niles, the the butler that he got her this Valentine's Day card that was you know you open it up like what rhymes with cupid and then you open it up and there's a mirror inside and it's like haha it's you know looking at you stupid or whatever and how that was so funny because he was trying not to lean in any further on this relationship stuff that they've had going on and then in his defense when she gets mad at him as she should because what a shitty valentine's day card when she gets mad at him he's like you always misinterpret everything we end up naked in a hot tub you misinterpret it we wake up next to each other in bed you misinterpret it i say i love you you misinterpret it and it's like i wrote down is he a dick like do i just not remember him being a dick but it it just seemed like we were walking in to this part of their relationship where all of these things had happened yet he was still unwilling to think of her as anything more than his employee and she's like forget you. You love me. Like you've already said you love me. We're in a relationship. But yeah, I was like, man, this is, this is crappy. This guy sucks. Like friends better than this guy. Peace out on him. Yeah. We're in the middle of act like two and a half of their relationship. They've started sleeping together. They're obviously completely up in the air and not on the same page. And again, it doesn't really factor into this story that much, but I would just say, you know, you diehard nanny heads out there, <laughs> forgive us for not knowing exactly what we're talking about. The other thing I want to say before we get into the bank robbery aspect, because like I said, I wasn't super familiar with this show and ultimately I didn't necessarily like it that much. But one thing I will say, one of the best opening theme sequences in TV show history. The song is amazing. The retro animation. It's so great. I love that opening title. Yeah, it is uh, reminiscent of I Dream of Jeannie. It's, you know, this this snazzy retro aesthetic to both the animation and the music. And it's really good and charming. And the song's really catchy. And in the style of I Dream of Jeannie, it tells you the whole premise of the show. And so I'm putting it out there. I, I feel like this is one of the most extreme gulfs of quality between theme sequence and actual show. And they do a wonderful job at marrying Nanny and Fanny in a rhyme structure, right? She was sure. out on her Fanny. Yeah. So getting to the actual show, Fran Drescher, what's her character's name? Fran. Easy enough. Fran has her whole little entourage, right? She has her mom. She has her mom's friend or maybe an aunt. It's another older lady. That's her grandmother, Yetta. So it's the three of them that go to the bank and... 
Right. So there's a reason that they go to the bank, right? This opening sequence that we get about it being Valentine's Day, all that serves to do is just set up that this episode is going to be one where we're not going to see Nanny Fine and Maxwell Sheffield interacting so much because they're in a fight and she's mad at him and she's like, you gave me a crappy Valentine's Day card. You said you didn't mean it when you said you loved me. I'm out of here. Like, you're horrible. So then she goes downstairs all in a state and Sylvia, her mother, and Yetta, her grandmother, are there. And Sylvia is telling Nanny about this new young boyfriend that the grandmother has, that Yetta has. And the young boyfriend is 60 and there's no reason he could possibly be interested in Yetta except for uh, he's after her money because she gets $200 a month from Social Security. So that's what he's after. So they have to go down to the bank to make sure that the joint account that Sylvia and Yetta share actually requires two signatures so this guy who is a gold digger can't steal all Yetta's money. So they're at the bank. At this point, you know, this is the same old process we're used to. Robber shows up. This guy makes the other robbers look like cool cucumbers, right? This is our most inane guy yet. This guy is like a sitcom version of Steve Zahn. Yeah. He looks very similar to him. He is kind of a um, his name's Peter Scolari. He's like a regular player guy, on on many different things. Isn't that the other guy from Bosom Buddies? Yeah, and he was in Girls as well. Is Fran sort of considering him as like potential romantic material like she keeps kind of sidling up to him no so sylvia does right okay. so her mom is like oh he doesn't have a ring on and so you know they're she's like mom he's a criminal and she's like but he'll be a millionaire in a minute you know like so they're doing all this this these jokes they're all mad at maxwell sheffield so he's out of the picture so you know what does every jewish mom do try to get your kid to marry somebody wealthy right like that's that's the joke but Fran's not really having it. She's just more like talking to anybody and making the best out of the situation. She's, you know, like at one point when they do the call for food, she's the one talking to the cops, telling what everybody wants, and then says, and a Valentino dress. Right. She's got the sort of alpha personality that kind of takes over the room and the guy is so fumbling. And yeah, just like in all these other situations, food eventually becomes an issue. We just want to kind of track that because that's going to be the whole basis of the next show. I guess what I noticed was that, like you said, none of these shows capture the tension of Dog Day Afternoon or any number of bank robbery movies. But this one is especially jokey. This one really doesn't want you to ever take seriously any element of danger or menace or anything. Right. He comes in. He doesn't have it. He has a a ski mask on the top of his head. And you can only tell that it's a ski mask and not a beanie because some hair is sticking out of the hole that's been cut in it. And he never pulls it down. And he's like, all right, everybody on the ground. And everybody gets down on the ground. You know, same, same. Get the tellers out. Get the manager to lock things, whatever. Go and get stuff out of the vault. And then everybody's laying there. And Fran goes up to talk to him. She's like, oh, honey, I noticed that you're messing things up, you know. And she's going up to him, talking to him or whatever. And uh, And he's like, what do you mean? 
fine. Everything's fine. And she's like, well, you forgot to pull your mask down. And he's like, oh. And he pulls it down. And it, the hole is his whole face. And he's like, oh, I brought the wrong hat. And she's like, yeah. Um, so, you know, and then she's like, they're talking. And she's like, what's your name? And he gives his full name to her. And 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 he's like, oh, wait, it's a. Uh, and she's like, don't worry. You know, so they're having, you know, it, it's all very campy and silly. It's, I mean, it's just showing in a small sense, the same thing that happened in the broader picture of the nanny coming into the Sheffield household. She comes in with her big personality and everything just turns on its head and starts to revolve around her. Same thing happens in this tiny little episode in this bank, right? It should be about the robber or about the situation or whatever. No, flip it on its head. She's getting relationship counseling from the, you know, the bank robber and telling the police that she wants a Valentino dress and, you know, all of these. Uh, she's the one that orders the food, like all the things. Right. So how does this ultimately get diffused? Um, I think, oh, you know what? I, it It is. This is the thing where it kind of parallels Dog Day Afternoon. He wants a car and a jet. Same, yeah. same. And he's going to take, they're trying to give him directions for the best way to get to the airport because they're from Queens. So I guess he's going to LaGuardia. And so they're trying to tell him how to, you know, oh, when you get here, you got to take the roundabout and take the second left. And they're like, no, it's the first left. You always go that way because you think it's the Mongolian barbecue, but you don't want to take that one. That's right. And he's eventually tripped up by the fact that Fran's mom gives him directions that are all sort of based around this Mongolian barbecue thing. And whether you make the turn before the restaurant or after the restaurant, right. and, and that becomes his undoing. And that's his undoing because Sylvia agrees to go with him as his hostage when he gets this car. So she agrees to go with him and then he takes the wrong turn because the mom directs him the wrong way and he gets caught in the parking lot of a Mongolian barbecue. And then we get this scene of Sylvia, the mom, being interviewed on the news, eating the ribs right. from the Mongolian barbecue and asked, you know, how are you feeling? How are you doing or whatever? And uh, and she's just like, oh, you know, these ribs aren't that good. They're, they used to be better. They must be under new management. Yeah. And so the situation is diffused. Back home, there's a scene of the butler eavesdropping on Mr. Sheffield and Fran while kneading raw meat with his hands. Do you remember this? Yeah, he was making a meatloaf. They live in a mansion, so they have an intercom so they don't have to like yell across the house. And um, he presses the button so that he can hear whatever room they're in so he can eavesdrop on the drama of their relationship because he says it's better than any soap opera he's ever watched. And so... Max, Mr. Sheffield, knows that he does this and tells him that he can't touch that. Like, don't you touch that intercom as they're going off into the other room to have a fight uh, or settle this fight that they've been having. And so then one of the little kids comes in and he's like, oh, you know, you hit that button for me. And then he sits on the stool and is continuing to mix the meatloaf mixture together. Yeah. So it's a weird sight to see him like grinning ear to ear over uh, eavesdropping on their conversation while he's grinding up meat with his bare hands. That's all I'm saying. My thinking on this show, Fran Drescher and her ilk sort of are what they are. It's an over-the-top caricature, but it's it's kind of funny. I think it's them. It's Mr. Sheffield and the butler. I think it's those characters that make me not connect to it. Like, I just think, you know, he, he's supposed to be the hoity-toity British guy that's a foil to her. Great. Totally on board with that. But 
I just don't find that actor that compelling. I think the butler comes across as kind of a creep to me. Like they're just, I haven't watched enough of it to really have like a coherent criticism. I just feel like I don't find those characters fun, you know? Well, and I'm remembering earlier, this is season four. This is, you know, episode like 17 or something of season four. So this is deep in, but the earlier episodes, it's Fran and the kids. And like, we get Mr. Sheffield kind of coming in and out, but it's not like, there's not a lot of interaction with the other adults other than, you know, you've got Niles, the butler kind of like butlering, you know, he'll, he'll walk into the room like Jeffrey, he would just have like a quip. And so there was no like huge character development to go on there. Whereas in this episode, we don't have, we have almost nothing with the kids. The two older kids, like they have half a line in one scene. Like they're they're not in this episode really at all. The youngest daughter has grown up a lot. She now, again, we've got another, you know, early teenager, kind of maybe preteen, but maybe 13, 14 teenager dressed in little kids clothes because they're still trying to make her look so young. And uh, yeah, so we've moved on at this point in the series from what made it funny, which was Fran not knowing how to nanny, but being a nanny and then sort of being enamored with the boss and all of the funny things that happen there. And so, yeah, we're, we, this was like an all adults episode. Um, so you're losing a lot of the heart and the funny. And if there was ever an episode that was centered around Jeffrey, it wasn't, it was like part of a plot. It was never the, like the A plot when we're talking about Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. And I think there was, yeah, I, I mean, I just don't think Niall's character has any development enough to make this more than just, oh, he's the funny guy who says and lurks in the corner and listens in. Just on a charisma level, I just didn't like them as much as, you know, some other snooty characters that we get, you know, in other shows over the years. Okay, let's move on to Bob's Burgers. Here we go. Season two, episode two, Bob Day Afternoon. Yeah. Now, I'm a huge Bob's Burgers fan. I think this is one of the best shows of the 21st century. I think we talk sometimes about the different sort of attitudes and sensibilities a show can have. Some are more positive and benevolent. Some are more sort of mean-spirited or nasty. And I feel like this one was really a response to that Seth MacFarlane family guy trend of everything is getting more and more kind of prickly and mean. Bob's Burgers just has so much positivity. It's all about the silliness and weirdness and craziness of this family, but the humor never comes from a place of hostility or alienation or anything. And I just love it. It's such a unique sort of voice and personality that it has. Those actors that do the voices and everything uh just really really good show so what's your experience with this? i struggled to get into bob's burgers because i was a huge fan of archer and i couldn't like h john benjamin's voice is h john benjamin's voice and he didn't do anything different between archer and bob and it just when i started to try to watch Bob's Burgers, it like it did not compute. And I was like, I need to get fully through Archer, sick of it, forget about it, be done with Archer before I can move on to Bob's Burgers. Because otherwise, it's just Archer doing this weird, like, schlubby dad character. 
Yeah, that's funny. And of course, I knew him back from Dr. Katz when he played Ben the Sun. It is funny, John Benjamin is, you know, he he does some stuff as a live action actor, but he's such a formidable voice presence. And you're right, it's one of those things his his voice is very distinctive, so I can see how it would be distracting and those shows and characters are so different. But nonetheless, I love it. I love him. I love Kristen Schaal, especially as Louise. Oh my but, gosh, she's hilarious. Yeah, the whole yeah. cast is really good. And But now, I mean, and I'm late to the game, right? Because we're 15 seasons in or whatever. <laughs> it's been on for like 14 years or something into Bob's Burgers. But now I can absolutely watch Bob's Burgers with you know love and admiration for all of the reasons that you said. So this episode begins with a bit that I thought just really kind of summed up the whole sensibility of the show in a nutshell. They're sitting around the table and then Gene, something prompts Gene to want to crawl back into his mom's vagina, basically, right? <laughs> he runs under the table. He's like, let me in there. You know, that's a running thing with his character that he's a mama's boy, but in this sort of peculiar way. But just in general, it's like, the family loves each other so much that it's weird and they show it in weird ways and the whole thing just, uh, what can I say? So the setup for this episode is Bob and um, family need to restructure their loans because they're late on their mortgage payments for both the store and their house because the restaurant is their house. And so they, they're going to go to the bank. Bob's going to go down to the bank the next day, which is right across the street. And he's going to talk to his loan officer and restructure his loans, even though they haven't made payments in several months. He's going to ask for the loans to be restructured and a little bit more money so they can make the improvements so they can do the things, which of course, as anyone who's ever tried to take out a loan knows, if you're late on your payments, the bank is not going to give you any more money. So that ends in complete and abject failure. The loan officer mocks Bob and his credit score, teases him brutally until he leaves the, the bank with his head hung in shame. And as he's leaving the bank, he holds the door open for Mickey. Yeah. And so this is another one where it's right there in the title, right? This is called Bob Day Afternoon. So one of the things they're playing on is this trope in bank robbery movies like Dog Day Afternoon, where the police have to set up shop. In in the case of the movie, it's a barber shop, but they have to set up shop in some nearby store or something to sort of establish their headquarters. And so, yeah, this robbery unfolds. Unlike the other shows, Bob is not caught in the middle when it breaks out. It just happens. And they have a lot of fun with this trope of, like we said, there always comes a point when the the hostages need food and bob says it's always pizza and sure enough you know uh there's a running gag of his arch nemesis is jimmy pesto the pizzeria owner across the street and so he's going to get to 
you know, at least he's going to get the first crack at supplying the robbers and hostages with lunch. Right. And because of that, he gets to be on TV because this is, you know, the hour of 24 hour news. So all the TV cameras are trained on the, you know, two guys who are carrying over the pizzas or the guy who's carrying over the pizzas. And he's all emblazoned in, you know, Jimmy Pesto's pizzeria shirts and boxes and so free advertising. And Bob is totally bummed that he didn't get the free advertising. And on top of that, the cops are using his restaurant as their headquarters. So the cameras are always facing the other way. Right. They're using Bob's Burgers. And yeah, we're getting to meet this police chief, which is also straight out of Dog Day Afternoon, right? There's in the movie, Charles Durning plays this police chief that is constantly negotiating with the hostages. And in this one, we have Sergeant Bosco. Louise runs up to him and says she wants to donate chalk in case they want to outline a body. I thought that was a really funny joke. They use that strength of this kind of animation where you can have a character just say, stay still, and they stay really still. And so there'll be moments where this Sergeant Bosco character is just standing there looking at Bob or at somebody and reacting. And it's really funny. And all he's doing is just standing there and doing nothing. Like staring at him. Well, and it's played by Gary Cole, who also has done this in live action as well. And and is that character who just like stands there and stares at you until you realize you sound like an idiot or makes you feel like you're sounding like an idiot, even when you're not. He's Lumberg from Office Space. No connection to Gary Coleman, of course, of different strokes fame. But yeah, so Jimmy Pesto's pizzas are going to be delivered by a sort of like by a robot, almost like a bomb diffusing robot, but it's like a food delivery robot. So we get this wonderful fantasy because one thing- We've come really far from Rasta Man in Family Matters, you know, just 20 years later. And look, we have robots. Yeah. And one thing that's great about Bob's Burgers, you know, when we covered The Simpsons, you mentioned how, well, it's animation, so they could do whatever they want. They go to outer space in one episode, travel through time in the next episode. Bob's Burgers is really good about using the animation aspect to visualize fantastical things, but always in the context of a fantasy, you know, a dream or a character is telling a story or something. And this is a great fantasy. The kid, what's the boy's name? So Gene sees the robot says something like, oh, did you, he, he asks the technician who's, who's hooking up the robot. He goes, oh, did you go to robot college? And then just cues himself to have this whole daydream of what robot college would be like, which is like a college for robots. And you see them going through all the rites of passage of driving drunk and throwing up in the lawn and all that stuff. Yeah. The robots are driving drunk. The ro- He's he's yelling at one of the robots, like, let me have your keys. And the robot's like, nah, man, this is college. This is what it's for. I mean, it's so funny. There's a bunch of like animal house kinds of things. There's like that when the, when the robot throws up, he throws up nuts and bolts. Yeah. I mean, it's just, it's so silly. Um, it was very funny. Yeah. And like I said, The actual stories of Bob's Burgers, this bank robbery is probably one of the most extreme things that ever happens. You know, they're really good about keeping the the actual stories grounded and having some sense of real life. Yeah. Well, so did you notice that the bank in this episode is laid out exactly 
like the bank from Dog Day Afternoon. It is, you know, shot for shot kind of the same layout. And it also was whatever town savings bank, wherever they live, which is the same in Dog Day Afternoon. It's Brooklyn Savings Bank. Mm -hmm. And so the pizzas end up not working, right? They have to take another chance at giving them lunch. And that's when Bob gets the opportunity to sell his burgers. Right. So the pizzas were so bad that the robber like throws them out the door and shoots them or the cops shoot them because he's thrown them or something. But they were so bad and, and everybody's yelling, even the hostages are like yelling out the door that the the pizzas are gross and they want different food. Like no one will eat these. These are not edible. So it turned out not to be good free publicity for uh, Jimmy Pesto or whatever his name is. So Bob is standing there with the police chief like, they want burgers. We're going to get them burgers. Burgers. Yeah, right. Because the police chief is on the phone with Mickey the robber. They're like, oh, Chinese, Italian, what do we want? They settle on burgers. Bob can finally make burgers and fries for everybody. He's happy. And we can have the explanation that happens in every episode where they get to say the name of the burger of the day, which is the charred to a crisp burger. So he's on the phone with Mickey. Bob's on the phone with the robber who's named Mickey, played by Bill Hader. And they're having this conversation about what kinds of burgers, what, you know, what does everybody want? Does everybody want cheese? You know, whatever. The special is the chard to a crisp. And then the robber's like, wait a minute, what? That doesn't sound good. And he was like, oh, I was doing a play on words. It's got Swiss chard on it. And he was like, oh, that's funny. You know, so. Yeah. so they start getting along. This robber played by Bill Hader starts to like Bob and he becomes the sort of go-between. Captain Bosco is like, all right, why don't you take these burgers over and, you know, you can sort of be our inside man, right? Yeah. And he's like, I don't want to do that. And in the meanwhile, Louise has her whole thing in this episode is that she has to write a paper uh, about someone that she admires. So she decides that she's going to write it about this guy, Mickey, the robber. And so she keeps getting on another extension in the home because the phone is now a direct line. Their their phone in the restaurant and their home is now a direct line to the bank. And so anywhere in the house, the kids and the, you know, the wife and everybody, they're just picking up the phone and they can talk directly to the robber in the bank. So she's on the phone interviewing him and the cop tries to pick up the phone and talk to him. And he's like, what's going on here? Yeah. So Bob ends up in the bank and right. starts and Tina, sort of bonding. Well, so he wants to get the free publicity. So he was excited at least to take them over, but they have him going rather than sending in the robot. They have, like you said, he's the inside man. And as he's walking out, he realizes that there's no branding on the bags that have the burgers in them. And Tita comes over and draws something on the bags and it looks like penises. And everyone's like, what's that? And she's like, oh, it's fish. And he's yeah. like, why is it fish? It's burgers. And she's like, well, it was easy to draw. And I only had a second. Yeah. And so the afternoon unfolds, again, a lot like Dog Day Afternoon, and then we get, just like Dog Day Afternoon, we're going to negotiate a sort of 
passage where we're going to get everybody, we're going to move all the hostages and the robber together by having the hostages form like a sort of human shield, a ring around the robber to protect him from snipers as we cross the street from the bank into Bob's Burgers shop. And that part is just like Dog Day Afternoon. But then the robber goes and you police have to make a huddle too, just, you know, because we're doing it, you should do it too. (laughs) Yeah. And I asked her, I was like, what's with the why are the cops in a huddle? Like they're randomly swapping places across the street. But yeah, what ultimately happens is Bob convinces Mickey to give himself up. He says like, look, you're probably going to go to prison no matter what. Because again, the robbers are getting increasingly incompetent with every passing show, right? So at this point, he has no plan. He's not even really entertaining the notion of getting out of this. And Bob is like, look, let me take you back, give you a good burger, let you, you know, go out on your own terms. And Mickey, he he says he wants to go out with grace and not end up, you know, on the sidewalk with his pants halfway down like his his partner did. That's right. That's right. He doesn't want to get tackled and they pull his pants down and then he's all over the news with, you know, half his butt hanging out. So he's like, I'm going to go out on my own terms and goes over to, that's why they form the little phalanx around him. He gets to go over to Bob's Burgers, have a burger, have a last meal, and then is going to, you know, try to make a run for it, I guess. Yeah. And so the same thing happens. At first, he's like, he wants to go out gracefully and just give himself up. And then he's like, ah, no kidding. I'm going to make a run for it. And ends up getting tackled, but his pants still stay on. So he feels like he's salvaged some of his His dignity. dignity. He says, my pants in slow motion as they tackle him. Yeah. So this one reminded me of when we covered the community episode. And it's like we had talked about the older shows that bought into this trope in this very kind of trite and hackneyed way. And then we got to community and it's like, yeah, we're, we're calling that out. We're having fun with the cliche. And this was that same thing. It's like, all right, you've all seen a bunch of bank robbery movies. Now, you know how the cops have to set up, set up shop in the store across the street. You know how two thirds of the way through the movie, they all have to order pizza and sit around eating and stuff. So wouldn't it be funny if the police set up shop in Bob's burgers? And wouldn't it be funny if Bob was the robber's accomplice instead of Frito from The Godfather? And yeah, it's having fun with those tropes. Yeah. It makes me think these shows that we talk about, Community, Bob's Burgers, where they've taken the trope and said, you know, let's look at it for what it is and let's laugh at it for what it is and yet still make good out of it, right? Is that a, like is that kind of the heart of Gen X cynicism that we just put on blast but send up with both love and you know a wink these things you know I immediately go to scream in the 90s how that was like we're gonna acknowledge and make fun of all the horror tropes but also still try to be an effective slasher movie. The other way to think of it is just playing on that shared knowledge we all have of, again, like community or Rick and Morty or something. It's kind of taking a step back and saying, okay, everyone that's between the age of, you know, 15 and 50 has seen 
Back to the Future and has seen The Breakfast Club or whatever it is and going, okay, so if there's nothing new under the sun and we're not going to come up with a new story that nobody's ever seen before, maybe we can come up with a fun spin on these tropes that everybody grew up with. Right. So like if you know something's coming because you've seen it a hundred times with all these other shows that have done it earnestly, we're not going to try and trick you or fool you or, you know, get away with something. We're just going to do the thing and we're going to laugh about it as we're doing it. And also still, because we're pointing it out and saying we're doing what we're doing, then that uh, like enables us to have a different ending or some kind of moral or some some more heart. Because in this Bob's Burgers episode, this actually starts their friendship, right? The family becomes friends with this character, Mickey, and they like, isn't he like a prison pen pal for Louise yeah. or something? Bob's Burgers sort of took a page from the Simpsons playbook where once you introduce a character for whatever reason relative to the story, that just becomes part of your community and you can bring him back and, you know, use him in all kinds of different ways. So yeah, this Mickey character shows up a few times throughout the series. I don't remember, honestly, what the different instances are, but he's always a rascal and it's always one of these, do we trust him or is he going to screw us over or whatever? But uh, yeah, he's a fun character. And the other way that you can look at this is just that sort of Rosencrantz and Guildenstern thing of like approaching it from a different angle and going, oh yeah, you know, again, if there's always going to be a need to give them food or if there's always going to need to be some random storefront that we shack up in, isn't it funny to sort of take it from that point of view? So that's Bob's Burgers. As far as the other ones, I think the Gary Coleman character has in common with the nanny, the way, like you were saying, she dominates every situation. And so oh, in both yeah. of those cases, you have that thing of maybe it's a bank robbery, but once the nanny is there or once Arnold Drummond is there, it becomes all about them. And they just sort of have that dynamic where they take over the room. And now all of a sudden the bank robbers are like, oh, didn't bargain for this or whatever. But yeah, honestly, where it gets you is you know, again, a exciting way to sort of kick off your season, you know, put our characters in peril and have things just sort of be stepped up a notch. And, you know, if you really want to be generous, teach a lesson about, especially if you are a child, don't try to do anything fancy when you're in danger leave it to the professionals and just do what you're supposed to do. Right. Which we really only get from family matters. The nanny, there's no lesson in the nanny. That was just silliness, the whole thing all the way through. All right. So, so much for bank robberies. What are we talking about next week? Next week, we're doing a deep dive into Julia Louis Dreyfus. We're going to start it where it all started. Uh, well, at least the big, big break, which was Seinfeld. We're going to watch season seven, episode nine, The Sponge. And then we will move on to her follow-up, which was called Watching Ellie. And we will watch Ellie in the pilot. We'll also watch the pilot of New Adventures of Old Christine and the pilot of Veep. Yep. So we'll be talking all about JLD next week. And until then, we will consider this segment of the sitcom study concluded.
Thank you for listening to the sitcom study. Tell us what you think or share your own TV tropes and topic ideas by sending a self-addressed stamped email to sitcomstudypodcast at gmail.com or find us on Facebook or Instagram. And if you like the show, consider leaving a rating or review on your podcast app. It helps us boost those precious Nielsen ratings. The sitcom study is recorded in front of a live studio dog.